Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today we're going to take up a difficult passage of Scripture, Hebrews 10, verses 26-39. I have chosen to entitle this section, The Problem of Apostasy. It's a problem for apostates, it's also a problem for Bible interpreters today to understand what was going on. Our context is this, in the first part of chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 1-14, through 14, we saw that Jesus was a better sacrifice than animals. And then in verses 15 through 25, the second part of Hebrews 10, we saw that we now have a new covenant as well as a new high priest. The Jesus' new covenant as well as the new high priest of that covenant who is Jesus. And now here in verse, verses 26 through 39, we're going to talk about why in the world would you want to abandon that better sacrifice who Jesus is? Why would you want to abandon that new covenant and apostatize and go back to the Jewish religion? So we start now in Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now this refers back to the previous verse, that for, since, or uh, in the previous verse, the author says, don't forsake assembling yourselves together. And if you do that, for if you do that, you are deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And so we see here this deliberate sinning is talking about apostatizing. It's not talking about your general generic sin. It's talking about apostatizing. For if we deliberately sin, if we apostatize after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And of course, apostatize, I'm using in a loose sense. It, it's the Calvinists say these people are never saved to start with, the standard reform position, so they would not be really apostates. They would be people who have rejected, people in the visible church who have consciously rejected the truth that's been presented to them very clearly. But we'll just say apostates just to make it easier. Now, for if we deliberately sin, this does not mean there is no forgiveness for a Christian who's committed a willful sin. Deliberately means willful. For if we willfully sin, oh, I, I deliberately lusted after that woman. Therefore, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, so I'm going to hell. Well, folks, that's obviously not what it means. Here's what John Gill says about that. These words have been wrongly made use of to prove that persons sinning after baptism are not to be restored to communion again upon repentance, and being understood of immoral actions willfully committed, have given great distress to consciences burdened with the guilt of sin. Every sin that you do is intentional. Well, not every sin, but many sins that people do are intentional. If we're going to say there's no salvation for people who commit intentional sins, well, there's no sacrifice for these people. That means nobody's going to be saved. Here's another quote from a brother named Troy Brooks. I don't know him, but I found him on the internet. Quote, we need to see that if the above verses could be applied to a Christian, that is, if a Christian is tempted to lie and steal to frequent places he ought not to go or do things he knows he should not do, and is thereby considered as sinning willfully and is therefore not saved, who then shall be saved? Even Paul and Peter would probably not qualify for being saved. Has not Paul the believer confessed, quote, for not what I would that do I practice, but what I hate, that I do, for the good which I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I practice. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me out of the body of this death? This, of course, is from Romans 7, and it's clear that Paul is intentionally sinning in that chapter. Does that mean there's no sacrifice for Paul? He's going to hell? I continue with Troy Brooks's quote, Does not Paul practice the evil he knows he should not do, and does not do the good he knows he should do? And has not the believing Peter denied the Lord thrice before made? Does he not know that he is lying and that lying is sin? From all this, we can know that the phrase sin willfully must mean something special. 
and he says it's the refusing new birth. It's not just committing a sin that one knows about. Well, I say the thing special is talking about apostatizing and going back to Judaism. It's not talking about any old garden variety sin. If we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of truth, let's talk about this sin again. I'm probably beating a dead horse, but let me say it again. The sin is by apostatizing, going back to Jerusalem. As Adam Clark says, it means to, quote, deliberately, it refers to, quote, deliberate apostates. Quote, one who has utterly rejected Jesus Christ and his atonement and renounced the whole gospel system. Now, what does this sin that the author is referring to not mean? This sin for which there is no longer a sacrifice of sins. It is not, number one, a single act of sinning. Rather, it is a course of sinning. Jameson Fawcett Brown quotes the great commentator Offord, who says this, There is a, quote, Greek present participle, if we be found sinning, that is not isolated, isolated acts, but a state of sin, sinning. So if we deliberately go and keep on sinning, that is by apostatizing. So it's not, it's not any old one-time sin. It's, it's a course of sin because of the Greek tense. Another thing that is not referred to is a sin of weakness. Notice, deliberately sin can't be a sin of weakness. Here's a quote from Matt John Gill. This is not to be understood of a single act of sin, but rather of a course of sinning, nor of sins of infirmity through temptation, or even of grosser acts of sin, but of voluntary ones, and not of all voluntary ones, or in which the will is engaged and concerned, but of such which are done on set purpose, resolutely and obstinately. Well, that's a little convoluted, but basically what it's saying, it's not talking about if you... Going down the street and you see a woman's cleavage and you say, oh my gosh, I didn't mean to do that, but unfortunately I look. Well, that's that's a sin of weakness. And that's not what Paul's talking about. I mean, what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. He's talking about deliberate sin. Well, you go out and try to commit adultery with somebody. You, you, you rent the hotel room and you talk the woman into going there deliberately with, with evil aforethought. It's not talking about unknown sins. It's because it's a deliberate. If it's a deliberate sin, you got to know what you're doing. An unknown sin, like the ones that the Old Testament sacrificial system covered, those were only unknown sins. Well, it's not what he's talking about here. It's not talking about backsliders either. Here's what Adam Clark says: A man may be overtaken in a fault, or he may deliberately go into sin, and yet neither renounce the gospel nor deny the Lord that bought him. In other words, it's not. It, so the sin that's being talked about in this verse is not an occasional sin. It's not an unknown sin. It's not even a pattern of sin by people who have not renounced the faith yet. In other words, a backslider who still says, well, I'm sinning, but I still believe in Jesus. It's not talking about that. It's talking about people who consciously reject Jesus and go back into Judaism. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now, what does it mean to receive the knowledge of truth? Well, here are two options. Option number one, receiving the knowledge of the truth and becoming saved. Option number two, hearing the knowledge of the truth without being saved. I receive it in the sense that I listen to it, but I don't get saved. Those are your two options. Now, option number one, receiving the knowledge of the truth and becoming saved, and then you willfully reject it and you deliberately sin. And that would be the Arminian view who says, yes, those are Christians. They deliberately sin. They willfully sin. They willfully reject Christ. Now, there are, there is, uh, well, notice that that view didn't, contradicts the reform view, which is option number two, is that the people never were saved to start with. But now there's an alternate view, a view which I hold, that says that, yes, we can agree with the Arminians that the people were already saved that deliberately sinned, 
for which there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. We can believe that they were saved, but we don't have to believe that there's no longer a sacrifice for sin for them because they're still saved. Because we don't want to believe that they can lose their salvation. When Paul, when the author of Hebrews says there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for these believing apostates, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, what, according to Sproul, what is meant there is that of course, there's no longer a sacrifice for their sins. Their sins have already been covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. There's no other sacrifice to be committed to save these people from their apostatizing sins. It's already been done. So there's no longer a, a sacrifice for sins for them. It's over with. Sacrifice has already been done by Jesus on the cross. Well, that's reasonable, I think. But I got another way to explain that, still acknowledging that these people are saved, which I do believe they were. I agree with the Armenians that they were saved. I disagree with the standard reform view that says they're not saved. So if they're saved, well, if they're saved, then why can you say there's no longer a sacrifice for sins? It sounds like they're going to die and go to hell. Well, no, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins once you leave and go into the Jewish system. In the Jewish system, there's no sacrifice for sins for you because those sins are worthless, as we've seen all throughout the book of Hebrews. Excuse me. Those uh, animal sacrifices are worthless, as we've seen through the whole book of Hebrews. So there's no sacrifice for sins for you if you go back to Judaism. However, the author is not saying that there's no sacrifice for sins, that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins if you stay in, in Christianity because Jesus' blood on the cross sacrificed for your sins. I think that's an easier way to explain it, but either way is fine with me because I do not believe that one can lose your salvation. And so saying that there no longer, longer, no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, we tell that to a Christian, oh, if you deliberately apostatize, there's no hope for you. You're going to hell. Well, one problem with that view is why, why can't the apostate repent? It is impossible to do them again to repentance. in Hebrews 6, and here there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Well, why not? If Jesus can forgive murderers, why can't he uh, forgive an apostate? Well, an Armenian could defend against that and say, just, just like I just did, they say, well, there's no longer the, the apostate who is now unsaved and going to hell if he dies. That apostate still has a sacrifice for sins in the Christian religion. However, in the Jewish system, there is no longer a sacrifice uh, sacrifice for him. He needs to stay in Christianity so he can get saved again. So I guess I could save the Armenian view by doing that. It, it, and so I would, if that's the case, you would have to argue against the Armenian view on other grounds. You could say the same thing in Hebrews 6. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance in the Jewish system. So, see, I'm being very nice to my Armenian brothers, even though I disagree with them vehemently about the ability to lose your salvation. But I guess you can make an argument that that's what's being said here. But, of course, there's lots of other scriptures that talk about losing your salvation, not just here in Hebrews 6. I think that Sproul's alternate reform view is the best view. It's no longer a sin for sacrifice. No longer a sacrifice for sin because it's already been done. So why are you trying to get people saved again when they're already saved? Trying to get them to keep the law. These apostates going back under the law, trying to use the law to get them saved again. Crucifying Jesus again. You don't need to do that. There's already a sacrifice for sins. There's no longer a, a new one once Jesus has done it already. So these people are already saved. Quit trying to get them saved again with works of righteousness. Now, I said there were two basic views about these people who were receiving the gospel, receiving the knowledge of the truth. They received and were saved. Option A, the Arminians. B, option B, they received by hearing but not believing. There is also another option that I really don't like. This is from John Gill. They were just hypothetical Christians. 
They were neither saved nor unsaved. It was just hypothetical. Here's his quote. These words are only hypothetical and do not prove that true believers could or should or do sin in this matter, to which may be added that true believers are manifestly distinguished from these persons, down in Hebrews 10.38, which we'll get to in a minute. Well, Hebrews 10.38 says this, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now we're going to talk about that verse a good bit when we get there. But the idea is, if any hypothetical Christian draws back, then God has no pleasure in him. So this verse right here, according to Gill, this receiving, if we're deliberately sin after receiving, is completely hypothetical. It ain't going to happen that such a person who hears the gospel, that there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, even if he believes or doesn't believe, that's not even an issue. There's just not a sacrifice for sins for people like that who receive the knowledge of the truth. No, 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 I don't think Gil's right. So I'm not going to go into that any further. Now, continuing with our difficult verse here, in, in Hebrews 10:26, we read at the end of the verse, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. No longer remains. Now, what, what are some options as to the meaning of this? Well, here's option one. If we, we reject Christ's sacrifice and go to Judaism for sacrifice, there's no sacrifice for sins because the Levitical sacrifices are worthless to take away sins, as Adam Clark says. Now, as I've previously mentioned, I'll mention it again, this view seems to work good for both Arminians and Calvinists. If these people that went back to Judaism were saved and then apostatized to Judaism, as the Arminians say, they won't have Jesus' blood to save them again if they go back to Judaism. In the Jewish system, there's no salvation. There's no sacrifice for sins. However, that, so that helps the Arminians out. However, the Calvinists who believe that these apostates never were saved, they were just attending Christian assemblies as the visible, in, the, in the visible church, they were never saved. They went back into Judaism and left the, their, nom, their, their nominal profession of faith in the Christian assemblies. They went back to Judaism, and now they won't have Jesus' blood to save them. Why? Because they're in Judaism. There's no Jesus' blood in Judaism. They could have had it in Christianity. So you see that that view of that, I've just partially, and by the way, I've not read this anywhere. This is all on my head, so take it with a grain of salt. But the idea that the author's talking about no sacrifice for sins in the Jewish system makes so much sense to me. Even though it helps the Armenians out, it also helps the Calvinists out too, for that matter. You don't have to go to the Sproul alternative view that these people were saved well, actually, it helps that view out, too. It, it, it avoids the whole problem, no matter what view you take, Calvinist or Armenian. It avoids the whole problem if you just say that in the Jewish system, there's no sacrifice for sins. So whether these people were saved or unsaved when they left and went into the Jewish system, it doesn't make any difference. There's no sacrifice for sins in the Jewish system. So why would you want to leave Hebrew Christians and go into the Jewish system where there's no sacrifice for your sins, whatever your sins are? Now, you could use this approach to deal with the problem in Hebrews 6, 4, where it says it's impossible to renew these apostate or rejecting visible, uh, visibly professing Christians. It's impossible to renew them to forgiveness. You could say, well, in the Jewish system, it's impossible to renew them forgiveness, so they need to come back to the Christians. That would solve that problem, too. So you wouldn't need Sproul's alternate answer to say that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance because they're already saved. Well, at any rate, this is my preliminary thinking on this difficult problem. But to summarize, I do not believe that the author is talking about Christians losing their salvation. I absolutely don't believe that because on other grounds, 
You can't lose your salvation. How can a son get unborn? Can he say, oh, I don't like my father. I'm out of here. No, he's going, whether he likes his father or not, he's still a son. Hebrews 10.27. This is in the middle of a sentence. So let me go back to the end of verse 26 that I've spent half an hour talking about. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 26, verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment. There's no sacrifice for sins in the Jewish system, but there is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Now let's talk about judgment in general. Here's some options as to what judgment could have, be, could have been meant here. John Gill suggests some outward individual judgment in this life. He also suggests maybe the individual judgment that falls after the individual's death. He also mentions the possibility of a universal judgment after the general resurrection. And all of that's nice, but I don't think it has a thing to do with the book author of the book of Hebrews is talking about here, what judgment he's referring to. I think that Adam Clark has the right answer. It's the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. Here's Clark's quote. Probably the apostle here refers to the case of the unbelieving Jews in general, as in chapter 6, to the dreadful judgment that was coming upon them and the burning up their temple and city with fire. That's exactly what it is. You go back to Judaism, remember this book is written in the mid-60s, the author of the book of Hebrews, and all the Christians knew that Jesus had said before that generation that he was then in, in the middle of, when that generation, that wicked generation of Jews that he talked about I think 13 times, lots of times, mostly in Matthew 23, that generation passed away before. That generation passed away back then. Not one stone of that temple is going to be left on another. In other words, a, a cataclysmic judgment on Israel. That would be a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Now, so what is that fire? Is it eternal judgment like Arminians tend to say? No. It's, it's rather disciplined in this life. Bad stuff that's going to happen to the apostatizing Christians in this life or the rejecting Christians in this life. Hebrews 6, 8 is in favor of this kind of fire, not being eternal fire, but temporal fire for judgment. Hebrews 6, 8. But if it, the ground, produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. Now note, it's the ground who are the apostates. They're not destroyed. It's the ground which produces thorns and thistles. The thorns and thistles are destroyed. So that means the ground is not going to hell, but their fruits are going to get burned up. And notice that the ground is worthless and about to be cursed, about to be. That doesn't sound like eternal judgment. About to be. Hebrews is written in the mid-60s. About to be cursed and will be burned at the end. End of the Jewish age is about to be burned. That's not eternal judgment, folks. That's eighty seventy. So we're going to assume here that the author is saying, you go back to Israel, you won't have a sacrifice for sin, but what you will have is a terrifying expectation of judgment on your city and on your country, and the fury of a fire, the same fire that's going to burn the city down, and which did so in 8070, and that fire is about to consume the adversaries, the adversaries of the gospel, the adversaries of Jesus. You want to go back to that? Are you nuts? We go to Hebrews 10, verse 28. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Other translations for disregards, despises, if anyone despises Moses' law. Or NIV, if anyone rejects Moses' law, what happens? He dies without mercy. Now this is, of course, referring to willful sins, presumptuous sins, as Clark says. It doesn't refer to unknown unconscious sins because the Old Testament ritual system 
Levitical system of blood animal sacrifices did not take care of presumptuous high-handed sins. It took care of sins which were done unconsciously. Willful sins were not atoned for. Here's a quote from a brother named Jeremy Myers that got off the internet. I don't know him. Quote, you will see that God never provides a sacrifice for willful sin. All the sacrifices are for sins that were committed in ignorance. Since the law was so complex, many people transgressed the law without recognizing it until later. And for regaining purity after something in life caused uncleanness. But if someone purposely, purposefully, knowingly, and willfully transgressed the law of God, there was no sacrifice available to them for such sins. And this, by the way, is standard. Even though it does seem a little strange, but it is standard. Everybody agrees with that, in other words. The Old Testament law was not for intentional sins. It didn't cover those. So, you don't have any covering. You don't have any forgiveness under Moses' law. So if you deliberately go out and rape, kill, steal, or rob or something, you die without mercy. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, here's a good passage talking about willful sin in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 7. If a man or woman among you in one of your towns that the Lord your God will give you is discovered doing evil in the sight of the Lord your God and violating his covenant and has gone to worship other gods by bowing down to the sun, moon, or all the stars in the sky, which I have forbidden, and if you are told or hear about it, you must investigate it thoroughly. If the report turns out to be true that this detestable thing has happened in Israel, you must bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and stone them to death. The one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. And then the witness's hands would be the first in putting him to death. And after that, the hands of all the people, you must purge the evil from you. There were some safeguards against just going out and stoning anybody to death. You had two or three witnesses, and the witnesses had to be the first one to throw the first stone, figuring that if it was a perjurer, he's not likely going to want to murder somebody that he perjured against that's going to put the blood on his hands. So there you see, no mercy in the Old Testament law for intentional sins. No mercy. There was no provision for pardon by an executive. There was no court of appeal. Here's a verse that kind of summarizes the Old Testament law's attitude toward intentional sin. Deuteronomy 13.8. You must not yield to him, the one committing the intentional sin. You must not listen to him. Show him no pity and do not spare him or shield him. Okay? That's bad business. You break Moses' law. Let's go back to verse 29 here, our next verse. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who was trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? Now this verse sounds to me like it's talking about Christians who apostatize, and therefore I agree with the Armenians and the Reformed Sproul, the Sproul alternate Reformed position that these people who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, who have been shared in the Holy Spirit and who have been enlightened, they're Christians, folks. And this verse adds the interesting fact is that they were sanctified, by which he was sanctified. So we're going to assume these are Christians, and we're going to say they're going to get worse punishment than the people who sinned against Moses' covenant. Again, that was being executed without pity. And so you think, well, now, this worse punishment must be hell, because what could be worse than being executed and killed by Mosaic punishment? So there are many right? The worst punishment that you're going to get is you're going to go to hell because you apostatize and you regard it as profane the blood of the covenant. Well, there's an answer to that. I'll get to it in just a minute because I do not believe that these Christian-believing apostates are going to go to hell. 
I do not believe that one can lose one's salvation. But it seems like the Armenians might have the upper hand on this verse, and we'll see in just a minute. Now, first of all, how much worse punishment, the options for the punishment, or eternal punishment in hell, as the Armenians like to say, or it could be severe temporal punishments, more particularly AD 70, because that's what the author's talking about right now. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve? Well, is this one who will deserve, is he talking about a Christian, as the Armenians say, and the Sproul alternate reform position says? Or is it talking about non-Christians, which is the standard reform position that they weren't ever saved to start with? Well, if you say that the punishment received is hell, as the Armenian says, or if you say that the punishment received is temporal, as the Sproul Reform view says that they were believers, but they didn't lose their salvation, they just were punished by something worse than Moses, but it was not hell. The problem with this, of course, is what temporal, the problem with Sproul's alternate reform view is, is what temporal punishment is worse than being executed under the Mosaic law? What kind of punishment is worse than that? Well, my answer to that is very simple. Read Josephus. 87, it was a living hell. Oh my gosh, people eating their babies, Jews escaping from the city with gold in their stomachs that they tried to escape with, and then the Romans grabbed them and sliced their stomachs up to get the gold, and they'd take the carcass and crucified on the wall of the city, women eating their babies, hiding the, the baby's flesh from the soldiers so that the soldiers couldn't eat it so they could eat their own babies later? Come on. What's worse, getting executed by stoning under the Mosaic Law or going through the hell of 8070? I'll tell you what was worse, 8070. And so when the author of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.29, how much worse punishment Worse than Moses, dying under Moses' law. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve? Do you think a Christian will deserve who was trampled on the Son of God by leaving the Christian faith and going back to Israel, going back to Judaism, and you're going to be burnt up in the cataclysm of AD 70? That's worse than being executed by Moses under the Mosaic law. That's worse. So you better think about it, Hebrew Christians, before you think about going back. Now, these Christians have trampled on the Son of God. That's pretty serious business. They profane the blood of the covenant. Profane means to treat with abuse, irreverence, or contempt. The Greek there is koinos, which means common or ordinary. So you treat as Jesus' blood like, ah, oh, it's a big deal. It's like the blood of a goat, the blood of an animal. is like nothing. It just doesn't mean anything. What is this blood of the covenant? The Holman Christian Study Bible translates blood of the covenant as blood that establishes the covenant. That of, that's one of those genitives, and there's a million ways you can translate those genitives, ofs. But the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as the blood that establishes the covenant. I think that makes sense because Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. When he was talking about the communion, this is the new covenant of my blood. The new covenant that is established by my blood. Hebrews 9.20, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. Talking about Jesus' blood of the new covenant. Hebrews 13.20 Now may the God of peace who brought us up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant. Exodus 24.8 This is now going back to the old covenant. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant. And that's the blood that established the old covenant at the confirmation ceremony with the twelve altars there. Matthew 26.28 This is the Lord's Supper that I just mentioned. For this, the wine at the Lord's Supper is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the righteous forgiveness of sins. And the parallel passage in Mark 14, 24 says, This is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. Now, you see how important the blood of the covenant was. It was the very foundation of the new covenant. And when people say, I don't want that. I want to go back to, G to Judaism. Things are better over there. Yeah, that's profaning 
the, the blood of the covenant, all right? That's profaning Jesus' blood. That's terrible. Now, let's go on to our next word in verse 29, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Let me read it again. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who was trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Well, you would think straightforward. That means Jesus' blood sanctifies or makes holy the believer. And so that means this is a believer. But, of course, the Reformers say, no, these are not believers. These are people in the visible church who just make a hypocritical profession, but they don't really believe. Well, that's a big problem for the Reformed position, is it not? Why is that? Because Christians are often called sanctified over and over and over again. In the New Testament, Christians are called holy or sanctified. Holy means sanctified. Sanctified means holy. And so the problem there is if you say these people are Christians, how can they have a worse punishment than those who die in hell eternally? Well, actually, it's not worse punishment of those who eternally die in hell. It's worse punishment than those who die under the Mosaic Law and get executed. It's not worse punishment than to die into hell. There ain't nothing worse than that, not even, a, not even 80, 80, 70. It's talking about being worse than being executed by Moses in verse 28. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy. Okay, so that's how I would answer the problem of how can these people experience an earthly punishment that is worse than Moses and yet is, and is not eternal punishment in hell. Well, of course, the Armenians say it's because they went to hell. That's why it's worse than Moses' punishment. And I say, no, the punishment spoken of is not eternal, but it's temporal punishment. The apostate Christians didn't lose their salvation, but they went through the hell of AD 70. Now, here's another interesting way to avoid this problem. If you're Reformed and you want to say these, these, these people who went back to Israel were not believers to start with, is to take the he referring to Jesus as being sanctified and not the apostates. So let me read it that way. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who was trampled on the Son of God by which he was sanctified? Excuse me. Let me read that again. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who was trampled on the Son of God regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he, the Son of God, was sanctified? In other words, the blood of the covenant sets Jesus apart as the Savior. That, my friends, is what I would call sucking air. It's plausible, it's rational, it's consistent, but it ain't right. He's talking about Christians here, folks. Christians who have left the Christian faith and are about to get burnt up in Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what he's talking about. Now, let me give the standard reform position a little bit of credibility here. These, according to the reform, these people who went back and are about to, about to go back into Judaism are non-Christian hypocrites. They were false professors who falsely claimed that they were Christians. For example, here's a statement by Steve Ackerson. It is not these people, it is not that these people were ever saved in the first place. They were very close to the gospel and were associated, associated with it, but they were not actually saved. Well, I don't believe that. Again, it says they're sanctified. How do you get around that? Here's John Piper trying to explain the same thing. It seems to be the religious separation and outward purification that often happens when a person becomes part of the visible church. Yeah, see, Reformed people love that phrase, the visible church. They come under the influence of truth in preaching and teaching. They taste it. In other words, they don't swallow it. They come under the influence of love among the saints. They come under the influence of the ordinances and even eat and drink the sacred emblems of Christ's body and blood. They feel the blowing of God's spirit of grace and taste his wooing and winning influences. And in all of this, they are visibly set apart from the world, sanctified the way the people of Israel was sanctified among the nations, even though many of them were faithless. 
And all of this gracious influence was purchased by the blood of Christ. So that verse 29 says it was indeed by the blood of the covenant that these hypocrites were sanctified. I listened to all that eloquence and it reminds me of those defense lawyers who were trying to prove to the jury that O.J. Simpson was innocent. When the whole fripping country knew he was guilty. <laughs> O.J. Simpson knew he was guilty. Everybody, his defense attorneys knew he was guilty. And so they come up with this incredibly convoluted and clever defense to try to prove he's innocent. But it's nonsense. And I, I'm sorry, I respect John Piper immensely, but this is just nonsense, in my humble opinion, to say that these people who are sanctified, and, and in Hebrews 6 it says they were enlightened. They were tasters of the heavenly gift. They were companions with the Holy Spirit. They were tasters of God's good word. They were tasters of the powers of the coming age. In addition to the fact in this verse they're sanctified, and you're telling me they ain't Christian? Please! Here's another verse that helps prove that they're Christians. Hebrews 10, 30, in just a couple of verses. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Doesn't his people sound like Christians? Or does it sound like the visible church and hypocritical fake Christians who weren't saved to start with? Well, if you're going to be take the standard reform position, you've got, you got to handle that one too. Of course, his people is the visible church. The visible church is a mixture of believers and non-believers, and so his people includes non-believers. Please, every time I hear visible church, I, I hear the sound of a of a hose with the compressor turned on backwards, and it's going <laughs> sucking air. I bet right previous in this chapter, chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Well, there, there's no question. Sanctified means Christian. So why not here? Just a few verses later, why would sanctified not also refer to Christians here in verse 29? Why not? Now, in order to avoid all this, some Reformed people say, well, it's just talking about hypothetical Christians who could never apostatize, but they're just being mentioned for the sake of exhorting the Hebrew Christians not to apostatize. Man, turn a compressor up. That's sucking air even harder. I'm not even going to bother to deal with that because I, I don't even think it, it passes the laugh test. These people were Christians, folks. Now, these Christians who apostatize or were about to apostatize, they are said to have insulted the Spirit of Grace. Now, this shows that the Holy Spirit is a person. I mean, in verse 29, it says that they insulted the Spirit. They profaned the blood of the covenant and they've insulted the Spirit of Grace. This shows that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force, because you can't insult a force, but you can insult a person. Here's a scripture that backs that up, Matthew 12:31. Because of this, I tell you, people will not be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That's perpetual unbelief against Jesus. That is insulting personally the Holy Spirit of God. It's not an informal force that you've insulted. You've insulted God himself personally. Ooh, that's not a good career move. When it says the Spirit of grace... John Gill translates that as the spirit who confers grace. Again, that's one of those genitive ofs that can be translated all kinds of different ways. And that makes sense, the spirit who confers grace. And now we can move on to the next verse, which is Hebrews 10:30. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Again, he's talking about the vengeance that's coming on Jerusalem in AD 70, so don't go there. For we know the one, that's God who has said, that's, one more of the continuous quotations from Moses that the author is using to impress his Jewish believer, his his Jewish audience. For we know the one who has said, when God says something, is the scripture being referred to, which shows that the scripture is God authored, God breathed. 
When God wants to say something, how he usually uses it in the scripture, written by a prophet or somebody like that. So the one who said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, that is a quote from Deuteronomy 32:35. Vengeance belongs to me, belongs to me, Yahweh, I will repay. In time their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom is coming quickly. Paul quoted that verse too, by the way, Romans 12:19. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath, for it is written, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. In other words, don't go around trying to get your enemies. God will take care of him. You don't need to be a Christian vigilante. Let the Christian courts, let God's Christian courts, excuse me, let God's courts take care of the wrong, the wrongdoing, doing. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the point is, God is the God of wrath. He's going to judge Jerusalem, Israel. Why would you want to go there? Now, of course, the God of wrath, uh, as well as the God of love, Western culture has totally ignored this. A bunch of the churches ignored it, too. The only place to be protected from this wrath of God, or this vengeance which belongs to God, is under the blood of Jesus. Of course, the apostates were profaning and rejecting the blood of Jesus, but... They could have been safe there. Another quote from the author of Hebrews in verse 30, The Lord will judge his people. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32:36. The Lord will indeed vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and no one is left. The translation there in the Home of Christian Study Bible, Deuteronomy 32:36, is for vindicate, is vindicate. The Lord will indeed vindicate his people. In verse 30, it's the Lord will judge his people. Much more negative connotation there. The word actually means to judge. Vindicate means to judge with a righteous, favorable judgment, but the author of Hebrews uses judges in a negative sense. But Adam Clark says actually the author of the book of Hebrews is using the word in a positive sense. The Lord will bring about a just judgment for his people. In other words, he's not bringing down condemnation on the apostate believers, but he is bringing about a good judgment for the church by destroying the apostate Jews. Here's his quote, he shall execute judgment for them, for this is evidently the sense in which the word is used in the place from which the apostle quotes. The meaning would thus, uh, uh, close quote, the meaning would be that God would vindicate his people, the church, after wreaking vengeance on Israel. Jameson Fawcett Brown, in, in contradistinction to Clark, says that judge is used in two different senses in Deuteronomy and Hebrews. Here's his quote. In grace, or else anger, according as each deserves. Here, judge, so as to punish the reprobate apostate. That's in Hebrews. There, in Deuteronomy, judge, so as to interpose in behalf of and save his people. So, however it works, whether it's to, to wreck the apostate Jews or to save the church, God's going to judge his people. Now, his people, again, that's a, that's a troublesome phrase because it sounds like the author is referring to Christians, which contradicts the standard review, standard Reformed view, which says that the author is not talking about believing Christians, but the author is talking about false hypocritical professors of Christians in the visible church. Well, how do we handle that? Here's how the standard reform, the holders of the standard reform position deal with this. They say the scripture quoted here is referring to the Jews as a whole. The Lord will judge his people. In other words, he's going to bring judgment on his Jewish people. He's not talking about bringing judgment on individual Christians who would apostatize and thus sending them to hell. Well, you know, even if his people did refer to individual Christians, it doesn't mean he's sending them to hell. He's, 
he's would be bringing judgment on his people, his Christians who go into Judaism and suffer the punishment of the Jews. So it doesn't matter here one way or the other who his people refers to. Steve Atkinson says the Hebrews were God's people in the sense that they've been God's chosen old covenant people and that God's going to judge those people. Well, I don't care whether his people refers to the the apostate believing Christians, his people, or whether it refers to the Jewish people that are getting judged. Either way, it means bad things are going to happen to his people if his people are apostates, Christians, believing Christians who've gone back into Judaism. They're going to get judged, and if his people just refers to unbelieving Jews, they're going to get judged in AD 70 when Israel is destroyed. So let's summarize this verse, verse 30, at the end of the verse where it says the Lord will judge his people. If you hold the Armenian view that these, that the apostates used to believe but now don't, well, they were his people in the past, so that would make sense. If you hold the alternate Sproul view that the people falling back into Israel were believers and who fell back into Israel Israel, but still maintain their salvation even though they have fallen back into Israel. If you hold that well, then obviously they are his people, so it's not a problem on those two views. Now, the only problem occurs if you have the standard reform view and say that these people who never believed and went into Judaism, they're called his people because they're a member of the visible church. So you see where the big problem is, is for the standard reform view. Verse 31. It is a terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. Sure is. Hebrews 12:29. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 10:27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Now, what is this referring to? It's referring to AD 70. Terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if you hold to the Arminian view and the Sproul, Sproul alternative reform view, the latter of which I do hold to, and you say that these are Christians who go back into Judaism, and you say, wait a minute, why would God do this to backslidden or apostatizing Christians? Why would he make them fall into the hands of the living God and be and to be destroyed in Jerusalem in 8070 with all that horrible? Well, let me just quick answer to that is, you don't think God can will judge, will discipline Christians who backslide in this life? He might take them to heaven, but you don't think that this life is going to be hell for these backsliding Christians? Ask any backsliding Christian who's been chastised by God and let them tell you how pleasant it was. That's not a problem to me. It's still a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God, even if I do go to heaven after I get chastised. Now, of course, the Arminian will say, well, this is just an apostate who's lost his salvation, and so he's going to fall into the hands of the living God, and God's going to throw him into hell. Well, we don't believe that we can lose your salvation, at least I don't. Hebrews 10.32, remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Remember the early days so you won't feel like apostatizing. You endured in the past. You had a hard struggle with sufferings in the past. You endured, so do it now, in the present. And by the way, remember is habitually remembrance in the present tense. So go on, remember. Be in the habit of remembering. The earlier days, now what earlier days is there often talk about? Probably when they first received the gospel. As the NIV study Bible says, they had unflinchingly suffered pecuniary loss and persecution from the unbelieving Jews in the Jewish religious system. 1 Thessalonians 2:14 through 16 Paul writes to the Thessalonians, For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. That's the Jewish believing churches, the Jewish Christian churches in Judea. Since you 
Thessalonians have also suffered the same thing from people of your own country, just as they did for the Jews. So the Thessalonians were being persecuted by Thessalonians, and the Jews were being persecuted by Jews. The Jewish Christians were being persecuted by unbelieving Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us, etc.? Well, let's keep reading. They displease God and are hostile to everyone, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, as we read all through the book of Acts, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they, the Gentiles, may be saved. As a result, they are always completing the number of their sins, and wrath has overtaken them at last. And, of course, Thessalonians, I believe, was written in the early 40s or so, so another less than 30 years, they're going to get wiped out, these Jewish Christians, in AD 70. Acts 8.1, Saul agreed with putting him to death. That would be Stephen. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. All right, so in the 40s, or the 30s and the 40s, the early church, the early Jewish church in Jerusalem, had been horribly persecuted, but they endured. So the author is saying, how about endure through this persecution that you're going, go, you're going to go through, in the, that you're going through in the 60s, but which you will be delivered from in AD 70. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, that means they were saved, at least it sounds like it, and if you remember that word, enlightened, it refers, it, it, it occurs in Hebrews 6.4, which reads this way. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. And of course, the Reformed people say, no, they weren't enlightened. They just had the light shone on them. They didn't have the light shine in them. They had the light shone on them. Nonsense, with all due respect. It is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions of the Holy Spirit, that they were saved. And so I think the word here is after you had been enlightened, it means after you were saved. You endured a hard, a hard struggle with sufferings. And it was not only in Jerusalem, but it was in Rome and other cities of the empire that Jewish Christians bore the brunt of persecution from their non-believing Jewish brethren. Oh, you can read the book of Acts. It's everywhere in the book of Acts. Hebrews 10.33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. Publicly exposed, Adam Clark says, that means they were exhibited as wild beasts at the theaters. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, quote, they were made a theatrical spectacle to the world. 1 Corinthians 4.9 says this, Paul says this, For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. They're in an arena, fighting the lions, getting ready to get eaten up and killed. We have become a spectacle to the world. Everybody's watching them, getting killed. And to the angels and to men. That's what happened to you Hebrew Christians. You want to go, and, but you, saw, you endured through that. Now you want to go back. You want to go back into Judaism. Just give it up. And at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. You weren't yourself persecuted, but you went to see the, your fellow Christian, Jewish Christian believers in jail. You stood by them. You encouraged them. You came to their aid. You came to their defense. And now you just want to forget all that. Run back to Israel that's about to be destroyed. Verse 34, Hebrews 10, For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. For you sympathize with the prisoners. Some translations have with my bonds. It's unclear. For example, the KGV, the Wesley's translation, the Young's literal translation have, you have sympathized with my bonds, which means the author of Hebrews was in prison one time and Hebrew Christians came to see him. But that's iffy because most of the translations have it this way as the Holman Christian Study Bible for you and sympathized with the prisoners. I think that's the way we're going to take it. The difference is because of a manuscript problem, Adam Clark points out. You accepted with joy confiscation of your property. Here's some scripture, 1 Peter 4:19. So those who suffer according to God's will should, 
while doing what is good and trust themselves to a faithful creator. And boy, I'm going to tell you, that's hard to do when people are robbing you and you got to have food to eat and a house over your head to live. I just can't imagine how they went through that. It's just terrible what they went through. Philippians 1.29, For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Suffering is a gift. It has been given to you as a gift to suffer for him. I'll never forget I was in a Chinese church in Shantou, China. A woman who started the church about 23 years earlier. She had turned it over to four Hong Kong educated, theologically educated pastors. But she was still around. She got up and just gave a short little exhortation. She says, how many of you in here believe that you're called to suffer? Maybe one or two people raised their hand. She said, let me ask you again. How many of you in here are called to suffer? Now maybe 10 or 12 people raised their hand. Everybody's struggling. I'm struggling too. She asked it a third time. How many of you are in here called to suffer? Maybe half the room raised their hand. She looked at everybody and she asked it a fourth time. How many of you in here are called to suffer? And she made her point and everybody, including yours truly, raised their hand because we know it's scriptural. But by golly, emotionally, it's hard to embrace. Now, of course, those Chinese Christians, they know what it means to suffer. I've roomed with one guy who was beaten with an inch of his life and, and tortured with electric cattle prods and got banged over the head with a telephone being swung around by its cord and being forced to squat down in a gung fu position in the blazing hot summer sun with no water till he thought he was going to die of thirst and who had to sit in a in a latrine with rapists and criminals bunched up sitting up against the wall at the end of which was a squat unclean squatty potty around which the flies were buzzing in the summer heat i could go on and on but you get my point those christians know how to suffer for christ they have a totally different experience than we do over here in the west Verse 34, you accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. You lose your earthly possession, but you got your heavenly possession, which is the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is good in heaven, is great in heaven. Your reward is great. That's a better possession. Hebrews 11:16. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, because he, for he has prepared a city for them. The heavenly Jerusalem is better than the earthly home in which you currently reside. Romans 8:18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Eternal possession. Verse 34, excuse me, enduring possession is called. Hebrews 10:34. For you sympathize with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. Your possession is better and it's going to last. It's going to endure. We go to verses 35 and 36 and we'll shut it. Well, we'll almost finished. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you and you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. So, don't throw away your confidence. So, in light of all the persecution that they had already been through, and in fact that they have a greater possession, an enduring possession in heaven, because of that, don't throw away your confidence. Just because they're taking your, just because you're persecuted, being persecuted by these Jews and they're taking your possessions, don't throw away your confidence. Your confidence is Jesus. Throw away has a reference to a, a cowardly soldier who throws away his shields and runs from battle. Ooh. For you need endurance, Hebrews 6.12 says, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Endurance. We think, oh, we're going to inherit the promises. 
Kind of like you sitting around and one day your rich uncle dies and leaves you an inheritance. No, that's not the way the scripture says. You inherit the prim, prim, promises and you inherit through faith and perseverance and endurance. For you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, which would be maintaining true to Jesus amidst the persecution and not going back to unbelieving Judaism, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. Now, that could be eternal life, but it also could be temporal deliverance from the persecuting Jews, and I suspect that's what it really is. We go to Hebrews 10, verse 37. For yet in a very little while the coming one will come and not delay. In a very little while, this gives encouragement to those who have been exhorted to endure. In the last several verses, endure, endure, endure. But it's only going to be for a very little while. You can hang on for a little while. It's like enduring pain. You know, just hold on just for a few more seconds. The coming one will come. That, of course, is Jesus. The author seems to be referring to the book of Habakkuk. As Gil, Clark, Jameson, Foster, and Brand, and the NIV Study Bible all point out. So let's read Habakkuk 2, verses 3 through 4. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. That's the end of the old apostate Jerusalem is going to get wiped out by the Chaldeans, by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Though it delays the end, the end of the Jewish system, the Jewish nation, wait for it since it will certainly come and not be late. It's coming. Look, his ego is inflated. He's without integrity, but the righteous one will live by faith. Now, there's an example of a judgment coming in Habakkuk. Babylon was about to come and judge apostate Israel, just like the coming one Jesus was about to come and judge apostate Israel some 600 years later. Coming one will come, will come in judgment. And once he does and wipes out your persecutors, Hebrew Christians in AD 70, then you will have endured and you'll be past your persecution. He will not delay. Again, it's coming soon. Morning, night, or noon. To show that this is obviously can't refer to the second coming. You know, a lot of times you see coming and it can refer to either the second coming in AD 70. But the second coming wasn't in a very little while, so it had to refer to the expected coming of Jesus to judge unbelieving Israel. Here's a quote from Steve Ackerson. These time statements must be taken seriously. It sounds as if the author expected the Lord to come in his lifetime. Was he wrong? Are there errors in the Bible? Of course there is not. Of course there are not. Rather, a distinction must be made between the 80-70 judgment coming of Christ that happened a little while, a quote-unquote little while after Hebrews was written, and the actual second appearing of Christ that has not happened yet. Then notice the not delay. He will come and not delay. That can't refer to the second coming. John Gill says this, his coming in his kingdom and power to destroy Jerusalem and take vengeance on the Jews for their rejection of him. It's not talking about the end of the world, second coming. Hebrews 10:38. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. This is continuing the quotation from Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2:4. more precisely. Look, his ego is inflated. Ego is inflated in the Old Testament is translated in the new, in, 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 by the author of the book of Hebrews as if he draws back. So ego is inflated in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, and in Hebrews it's if he draws back. Habakkuk 2.4, look, his ego is inflated, he is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. The author here is looking ahead to chapter 11, our next chapter, the Faith Hall of Fame. So it gives us a preview, the righteous one will live by faith. And of course, living by faith, this is sort of a theme of the New Testament, Romans 1.17. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the famous quote in Habakkuk. I didn't mention this, Habakkuk 2.4 is an extremely important verse because it's quoted all the time in the New Testament. The righteous one will live by his faith. Paul just quoted it there in Romans 1.17. Also in Galatians 3.11, he says, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. 
Now, we have a problem here because some Armenians want to say, see, this shows we can lose our salvation because you've got a righteous person living by faith. And then he draws back, he renounces his faith, and now God has no pleasure in him and sends him to hell. No, that's not what it means. Well, first of all, let's look at the translation problem. In the Old Testament, his ego is inflated. That Hebrew word is also translated draw back into Greek. The Hebrew word, which I can't read, used in Habakkuk 2.4, in which by the Septuagint there in in Hebrews 10:38, and by the well, by the Septuagint in Habakkuk 2:4, and by the apostle here in Hebrews 10:38, that word is translated in the Greek by hupostelati, and is rendered draw back, according to the Jewish rabbi R. David Kimchi. It signifies pride, haughtiness of heart, and according to another rabbi, Jarchi, it signifies impudence. So God's not happy with those who are justified by faith but who are proud, who are haughty of heart, who are impudent. Adam Clark adds another connotation. He says that Greek word, hupostelene, signifies not only to draw back, but to slink away and hide through fear. Now, I, I think what you're going to see the problem here is it sounds like my righteous one will live by faith, but then if he becomes impudent, if he, sla- if he, if he slinks away and hides through fear, and if he becomes proud and haughty of heart, God will take no pleasure in him, send him to hell. That sounds like you can lose your salvation. We will deal with that in just a minute. God will take no pleasure in him. Here's what Adam Clark says. As dastards and cowards are hated by all men, so those that slink away from Christ and his cause for fear of persecution or secular loss, God must despise. In them he cannot delight, and his spirit, grieved with their conduct, must desert their hearts and lead them to darkness and hardness. Ooh, desert their hearts? His spirit sounds like he's leaving them. He's making them unborn again. Well, let's deal with that problem. Jameson Foster and Brown says that this verse does not disprove the final perseverance of the saints into salvation. And here's Jameson Foster and Brown's reason for saying that. The righteous shall live by faith. That righteous doesn't refer to saved people. It refers to people who do good works, but they're not justified in God's sight. I do not believe that that is a proper way to interpret that verse. I think that is extremely weak. We know that righteous can have two cents. That's true. But... But the righteous shall live by faith. I mean, that's quoted all the time. It's referring to Christians, even in the New Testament, as I just said. So I don't think that's a good answer by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This is my answer, and it's very simple. It says God doesn't take pleasure in those who shrink back. It doesn't say he's going to send them to hell. It just says he's upset with them. Where does it say he sends them to hell? It doesn't even say that. Now, there's a, a peculiar problem of translation here that also tends to back up the idea that you can't lose your salvation. If you read verse 38 here in Hebrews 10 in the Holman Christian Study Bible translation, it sounds like you got one group of people, righteous people living by faith, and in that group of people, one of those groups of people draws back and God gets mad at him. But now many translations, English translations, do not have it that way. They say, for example, the King James translation says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, in other words, not a just man living by faith, but if any man in general, which would include sinners and non-believers and so therefore we don't have a problem with people losing their salvation they're not that's not the only translation that does it that way hebrews 10:38 in the new king james says but if anyone draws back in general not necessarily one a just person living my faith the new revised standard version says my soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back but the righteous one should live by faith is a separate entity Hebrews 10:38 in the Webster's Bible translation. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man, they do put it in brackets to show that it's not in the Greek, 
But if any man shall draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So again, it's not the just living by faith who are drawing back and losing their salvation, but if anybody. So that's one way you can solve the problem. But I, of, of can you lose your salvation here because of this verse? The easiest way, in my humble opinion, rather than going to all those translations, is just to say, look, it says God is not, he's angry with you if you draw back. It doesn't mean he's going to send you to hell. He just has no pleasure. He's fed up with you. Just like a parent, he can still, a parent can still love his child, but be completely fed up with him when he goes out and robs a bank. Hebrews 10, 39, but we are not those who draw back. And again, we see two, two groups here, those who are righteous and those who are not righteous. Those who draw back and those who don't draw back. And the author says here in verse 39, but we are not those who draw back and are destroyed. And of course, that would be destroyed not eternally, but would be destroyed by the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070, according to my interpretation. But we are not those who draw back and destroy. We still believe we're going to endure. We are of those who have faith and obtain life. So once again, let's point out this verse is not arguing. It argues against being losing your salvation because it says we are not those who draw back. Verse 38 could be argued in favor of losing your salvation because verse 38 says, my righteous one will live by faith. And if he, the righteous one, draws by faith, as many translations have it, it says like, excuse me, my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, he, the righteous one living by faith, draws back. It sounds like somebody that's living by faith draws back by apostatizing. Then God has no pleasure with him and sends him to hell. I've answered that, I think, all right. When we go to verse 39, you could you say verse 39 argues for perseverance of the saints. Perseverance all the way unto salvation with, with no apostatizing because... We are not of those who draw back, the author says. Well, I don't think the verses ought to be used either way to prove perseverance of the saints or to prove that you can lose your salvation. The point is, is you need to stay out of Israel because it's about to be destroyed, not eternally, but temporally with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And we're not of those who draw back and go back into Judaism and are destroyed when that judgment comes. We have faith. We have life. Now, the author, despite all of his serious warnings, is convinced that most of his readers will stay faithful. From this verse, we read that. We're not going to be destroyed. We're going to, we, that means you and me, you Hebrew Christians and me, we're not going to lose. And this is what is so typical of exhortation is after all the exhortation, all the bad things that might happen to you, the author then says, but you're not going to do it, are you? Because I trust you. It happens all the time. Same even in Corinthians. Here's an example of this, Hebrews 6, 9. Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. You're going to make it. Now, I mentioned that the destroyed here means the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070, but we are not those who drove back and are destroyed like your fellow ethnic Jews are going to be destroyed in 8070. I'm not the only one that believes that. Here's Adam Clark, who, as far as I know, is not really a, an Orthodox preterist, but he has preterist ideas every now and then. Here's what Adam Clark says. It is very remarkable, and I have more than once called the reader's attention to it, that not one Christian life was lost in the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. Every Jew perished or was taken captive. All those who had apostatized and slunk away from Christianity perished with them. All the genuine Christians escaped with their lives. This very important information which casts light on many passages in the New Testament, and I would say hear, hear, amen to that. This very important information manifests the grace and providence of God in a very conspicuous way. It's given both by Eusebius, that's Eusebius of Caesarea in the 4th century A.D. It's given both by Eusebius and Epiphanius, another church historian. Talking about the when Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies, 
the abomination of desolation. Jesus said, flee from the city, and they did, and they went to Pella. That's a well-known story if you're familiar with a Orthodox Preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished this difficult passage of Scripture. I hope you got something out of it. I hope you stay tuned for the next one in Hebrews 11. We'll talk about faith and the Hebrews' faith, Hall of Fame. See you then. Hope you enjoyed this audio.